In my first year of studies, I was introduced to the concept of nature or nurture. You see, there's a conundrum in life. As we view the characteristics and actions of living things, we are faced with the question, are they born that way or have they been brought up that way? Are we genetically predisposed to being who we are or have we been conditioned or taught to be the way we are? Is it nature or nurture? Sadly, as we think about our children, parents have no excuse. Parents both contribute genetically to the makeup of their child and they are intimately involved in teaching their children from day one. It can be hard to distinguish if a child's values comes from their nature or from nurture. So it's not surprising that some parents, uh, to change the characteristics of their children, resort to medical or surgical intervention. But this morning, as we consider this section in Luke, I would like us to consider, or even you to consider, your values and your beliefs. Where do they come from? Who shapes your values? Who shapes your beliefs? You see, it's our values and our beliefs that govern our actions and our attitudes. They govern our life's choices. In the end, your values and beliefs form your religion. All people are religious, although some would deny it. All people have values and beliefs that govern their decisions. Many people align themselves with an organisation or, or an institution, but many other religious people seek to stand alone. But in the end, all people follow their religion. They follow their values and their belief system that they've either grown up with or they've been taught. Theophilus, the intended recipient of this book of Luke, has come to believe in and has come to trust in or been taught to trust in and follow the man Jesus Christ. And over the last few weeks in our series, we have seen that Theophilus has been shown the extraordinary life of Jesus. His predicted arrival, his amazing birth, his astonishing baptism, as well as his testing and his teaching. And last week we saw that Theophilus was introduced through this historic account of Luke's to the authority of Jesus. His authority over demons, authority over sickness and creation, and even authority over people's lives. But now, as Theophilus reads this historic account of Jesus' life, he is faced with a challenge. In our reading today, there is a challenge to Jesus' authority. But there is also a challenge to Theophilus' values and beliefs. In Luke chapter 5, verse 33 to 6, 11, Theophilus is given three episodes in Jesus' life where he faces increased opposition to his ministry. Luke flags that this is the beginning to what will be a fatal uh, interaction between God's anointed, the Messiah, and the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. But it is in these three initial episodes that Jesus shows his authority over the Jewish religion, over the values and belief system of the Pharisees. So let's dive in and take a look at these three important episodes in Jesus' life. 
So, the first episode, which I've called Fasting or Feasting. In here we'll find that Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees and and their scribes. Jesus and his disciples have been celebrating at Levi's house over his decision to leave everything and follow Jesus, which we touched on last week. This was a celebration, an evangelistic event. Levi's friends had all gathered for a banquet held for Jesus. But the Pharisees and their scribes were muttering and complaining in the background. And as Jesus states why he's come, that he has not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance, well then a course is set for growing opposition to his ministry. And so in verse 33 we find the Pharisees engage with Jesus, questioning him directly about his ministry. And their question relates to the immediate context of the banquet. So come with me to verse 33. Have a look there, verse 33 of chapter 5 in Luke. Then the Pharisees said to Jesus, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. On the surface, surface, it seems that the Pharisees and their associates are in agreement with John the Baptizer and his students. Now remember that John the Baptizer prepared the way for Jesus, calling people to repent and be forgiven of their sins. But he never aligned himself with the religious leaders of the day. In fact, it was quite the opposite. At one point, he calls them a brood of vipers. But unlike Jesus' disciples who were there partying, John's disciples, like the Pharisees, did fast and pray regularly and purposefully. They were calling out to God to send his Messiah. But what should you do when God answers your prayer? What should you do if God actually sends the Messiah? We'll follow again with me from verse 34. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, You cannot make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. Jesus' response to the question indicates that he is the cause of celebration. That his presence signals the end to the fast as long as he is with them. Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the one that they've been fasting and praying for. But the Pharisees don't see it. They've been so caught up in their ritualistic fasting that they've missed the point entirely. Pious actions and pious lives are nice, but but if they miss the purpose, they are useless and they reek of hypocrisy. The Pharisees' practices have been shown up for what they really were. They were empty. There is a purpose for fasting and there will be a time to fast, but Jesus explains that that time has not yet come. While he is still with them, they continue to celebrate. But there will be a day when he'll be taken from them, and those will be the days to fast. Now I want you to notice here that 
that the issue, as Jesus sees it, is not just about fasting. Jesus presses into the issue that is behind the question the Pharisees are asking. It's the issue of who he is and what era he brings in. The coming of the Messiah, Jesus, signals a new era. Jesus opens the gates of God's kingdom. He brings about the fulfilment of the Old Testament and its law. Jesus brings in the new era of the gospel, the good news of God. But how does this new era fit the Old Testament practices, like like fasting? Well, Jesus is quick to point out that the mixing of these religious practices, the practices of the Pharisees, with the new era of the gospel will be damaging and will certainly lead to significant problems. Now Jesus uh, explains this in the the three, or the one parable, but the three metaphors he uses from verses 36 to 39. And you can see that there's increasing uh, intensity as he explains this, that he says that the gospel definitely cannot be mixed up or, or contained in Judaism, otherwise both will be destroyed. At this point, I'm not going to actually explain carefully those, those metaphors in detail, but, but I want to point out to you the last one, the verse 39 there. Just have a look at what Jesus says there. Verse 39 of chapter 6. Oh, sorry, chapter 5, verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine desires new wine, but says the old is good. You see, the Pharisees love the old wine. They loved the traditions and the practices of their religion, but they had no time for the new era of the gospel. They would say the old wine is good, but God's people, as they welcome his anointed one, the Messiah, taste the new era of the gospel. And you cannot mix the old with the new. If you tear up something new and patch it to the old, well, both will be destroyed. If you pour new things into old flasks, well, both will end up on the ground, destroyed. Jesus ushers in the new era of the gospel and it cannot be contained in the practices of Judaism. They will both be destroyed and their purpose will be lost if that happens. Jesus' disciples were right to feast. They were right to celebrate for the one who they'd been fasting for had come. God's anointed was there, a new era of the gospel had begun. The next two episodes, starting at chapter 6 there, have a related theme of working on the Sabbath. In the first of these two episodes, which I've titled, Jesus Defends His Disciples, we get a sense of the growing opposition of the Pharisees towards Jesus, his ministry and the disciples. We now find that the Pharisees seem to be following Jesus and his disciples, watching them closely. And in this episode, we see that they pick up on Jesus' disciples uh, a technicality that they've missed. In, ch- in chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, we find that the Jesus, as Jesus is walking through the grain fields with his disciples, uh, the Pharisees notice that the disciples have been picking heads of grain and eating them. Now, as this passage makes clear, the 
The issue is not that the disciples are stealing from someone's grain field. The Old Testament makes allowance for people in need of food to do exactly this in Deuteronomy 23. But as this passage confirms, the issue the Pharisees are concerned with is that the disciples are doing this on the Sabbath day, the day God gave them for rest. The Old Testament law makes clear that there will be no harvesting, no reaping, no threshing, no food preparation done on the Sabbath day. It was to be a day devoted to enjoying God and his creation rather than a day of work in his creation. But this technicality had had not slipped past the eyes of the Pharisees. They notice what they have done and so they, they confront the disciples of Jesus. In verse 3 of chapter 6, Jesus rushes to the disciples' defence because the Pharisees in their rigid legalism were missing something. Jesus points them to the account of David uh, in 1 Samuel 21, which we had read out to us before. And this account, neither uh, was David condemned nor anything spoken negatively about him. Did you notice from the reading that the priest did not hold back from giving Uh, God's anointed king, what he needed, even though he was not supposed to. The law was not created to be a burden against David or, or even the Jewish people. It was created for their benefit. The Sabbath law was not created to be master over God's people. It was created to serve them and be a benefit to them. Yet the Pharisees, in their rigid legalism, made no allowance for grace. They made no room for mercy. In the second of these two episodes, Jesus openly defies opposition of the Pharisees. Notice in verse 7 that the Pharisees and their their scribes were attending a synagogue service, not to hear God's word, but to watch Jesus for a reason to accuse him of something. Now, this is a terrible thing, a terrible reason to go to church or or to go to synagogue, to watch people and and take notes and, and see if there's a reason to catch them out. But this is exactly what some people do. And this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. And here, Jesus is furious. He knows what they are thinking and so in an act of defiance he brings to everyone's attention the plight of a man with a paralysed hand. Can you see the drama of this episode? A man with a disability, embarrassed as he is asked to stand up in the court of the synagogue and then Jesus goes on teaching around him. Verse 9, have a look at verse 9 there. In verse 9, then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or destroy it? Saving life on the Sabbath was permitted under Pharisaical law. But surely there must be a line in which you can draw. Surely a withered hand is not life-threatening. Well, Jesus calls and asks and waits for a response. But there is none. The naysayers are quiet. 
So Jesus calls out to the man standing in the middle of the room in the synagogue and he asks asks him to stretch out his hand. Now who heals this man? Jesus just spoke the word. The man lifted his hand and it was healed. Surely it was God who healed him. The Pharisees are caught in a difficult place. It was God who worked on the Sabbath. The evidence seems to give God's approval to Jesus' word. But there is a contrast which is palpable in this, in this, um, uh, this story. While Jesus is set on his heart on doing good on the Sabbath, the Pharisees are secretly plotting evil on the Sabbath. Have a look at verse 11. Verse 11 there. But the Pharisees were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Right in the middle of these two episodes, uh, we find that, uh, sorry, right at the end of this episode, we find that there is a stark contrast between the religious leaders and Jesus. Jesus does good on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are plotting evil. And yet right in the middle of these two episodes, Jesus makes a a serious claim. He says, and have a look back there at verse 5, he says that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And the evidence seems to prove it. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He rightly has the authority to interpret and to evaluate the law. Jesus has authority over the Pharisees' religion. These three episodes in Luke's account are a challenge. They are a challenge to the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees. They're also a challenge to the various religions in Theophilus' day. And they are a challenge to the values and belief systems of our day. Jesus has authority over religion. So as we reach the end of this section, the question for us, as it was for Theophilus, is who shapes your values? Who shapes your beliefs? What shapes your religion? Does Jesus have authority over your religion? Or is he just contained within your religion? Here the religion of the Pharisees was keeping them from thinking seriously about Jesus. Their traditions and values, their beliefs and their rituals were a barrier to them, understanding the gospel. But Jesus shows them that their religion is like an old, worn-out garment that needs to be cast aside. And Jesus needs to cover them with the new era of the gospel. Jesus brings something new and something good And it cannot be mixed with their old ways. Otherwise it will destroy both. There is a challenge to leave absolutely everything behind and follow Jesus. Just like Levi did. And just like the other disciples do. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And we must decide whether we will hear what he teaches and obey him or whether we'll continue in our rebellion. 
we have to decide whether we will bend our knee to the Lord of the Sabbath or whether we will do what we can to avoid his authority. But so that you may know the certainty of what you've been taught, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Anyone who claims to follow him must submit to his authority over all their values and their beliefs. Is Jesus the Lord of your religion? Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending the Lord of the Sabbath to earth to teach and to explain who you are and what we must do. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even in our sinfulness, Jesus died on the cross on our behalf. We thank you that by his righteousness, we can now be true followers of the Lord Jesus. And so, Heavenly Father, help us to bend our knee to the Lord of the Sabbath. Help us to acknowledge him and to be changed by him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.